All Americans are familiar with the United States Constitution. And by familiar, I mean they've heard of it, and they know about it, and it does stuff. And our government is a, it's a thing that's related to the, to the government constitution stuff, right? Well, simply put, it determines that the federal government can and can't do certain things. Anything that the Constitution says the federal government can do, the federal government can do it. And anything not listed in the Constitution, well, those powers go straight to the United go straight to the states. But why do we have the United States Constitution? Why do we let these old ideas on decaying parchment dictate the modern United States of America? What were these lunatics thinking? Well, in order for us to understand the United States Constitution, we must first understand its origins, its predecessors, and the debates surrounding it. This podcast is about the Federalist Papers, and arguably more important, the anti-Federalist Papers. Many of us who study American history have heard of the Federalist Papers, a collection of 85 essays written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, under the pseudonym of Publius. And these essays were sent to the Independent Journal, the New York Packet, and the Daily Advertiser to be published so every American could understand the case the Federalists made for the federal government. But those familiar with the Federalist Papers might not be familiar with the Anti-Federalist Papers. As in the case with American politics, you cannot have a yay without a nay a left without a right, a do without a don't, and a federalist without an anti-federalist. I would say the anti-federalist papers are more important than the federalist papers for two reasons. First, we already have the U.S. Constitution. We can judge the Constitution by the fruits that it has bared. Second, we don't hear about the anti-federalist papers nearly as much. We don't know what issues they brought up. We don't know why they brought them up. And we don't understand if they had any influence on the Constitution. And if they did have an influence, what those would have been. But first, a little history lesson. Okay, maybe not a little. Buckle up, and you might want to take some notes. So in the beginning, there was 13 colonies. 13 independent states. They had a history of working together, trading with each other. They were in the same boat. They knew each other. And, well, they would have uh, have fought each other and sabotaged each other, stabbed each other in the back. You know, because they're 13 independent states. But they were not united. There were not one government. There was nothing that officially held them all together. It was experience. It was respect. It was all a gentleman's agreement. That all changed when they had enough. When they were fed up by England constantly abusing their power against these colonies. Now at the time, England was not a foreign country to them. England was home. Many of them were Many of these colonists were first or second generation Americans, and they still considered themselves to be Englishmen. 
just as a Californian and somebody from Washington or Oregon, all Americans. Well, so too were these guys, all English. Now, the United States, these 13 independent allied states, it was time, time to fight. So on July 4th, 1776, they came together and agreed to go to war against England. But they were 13 states. There was no centralized authority. There was no common government that held them all together. Again, it was the same gentleman's agreement. Everything that they did, they did by talking to each other, working together, agreeing, or not so much. And a lot of it, a lot of the military, a lot of the resources, it was going to favor whichever state sent it. Well, it wouldn't be until November 15th, 1777, that the Articles of Confederation were finally agreed upon. And when I say agreed upon, this still wasn't an official government, this was more of a gentleman's agreement. But it would be one large, sort of federal government, but not too federal, that was going to oversee the military and manage the troop movement. It wouldn't be until March 1st, 1781, when the Articles of Confederation were finally ratified. 1781, that's four years. Four years of their government being very much unofficial and more of a gentleman's agreement. Now, these Articles of Confederation, despite them being official, were just horrible. They were awful. They couldn't do anything. It, it just, it, it sucked. And the problems with the Articles of Confederation weren't going to go away when the war ended. In fact, it was only going to get worse. On October 19th, 1781, the same year the Articles of Confederation were finally ratified, the Revolutionary War came to an end. Five years later, on August 29th, 1786, a Revolutionary War veteran by the name of Daniel Shea had enough, and he started a rebellion. His rebellion started because, well, he fought and he gave his life fighting for this country, fighting for his independence. He got independence, and that was it. He didn't get any money, and whatever he did get paid in would have been government debt that was useless, that nobody was going to accept. So he fought for this country, he was proud to do so, and now he's poor. He's got no money, his friends are dead, or severely handicapped, and he's not the only one in this boat. So he's not happy about this. He resents this, and he takes up arms against this. This whole thing is a product of the Articles of Confederation. Because the Articles of Confederation did not allow the United States government to tax individual states, because it didn't allow the United States federal government to take from anybody, any of these states, because if there was anything that the federal government needed, it had to ask the federal government and therefore, or it had to ask the states 
and therefore the states wouldn't just give it to them. They could say no, and more often than not, they didn't give the government what it needed, either shortcutting them, or shortchanging them, or giving them nothing altogether. And this revolution was hard to put down for the same reason. They couldn't recruit the soldiers. They couldn't take the resources needed. They needed permission from the states first. But it doesn't help when you're recruiting a bunch of soldiers saying, hey, we're going to pay you, but we need you to go after these guys who are going after us because we didn't pay them. It's like hiring mercenaries to go after mercenaries that you failed to pay. That's not... That's not a good, not a good strategy. But it was finally put down, and it was such a horrible event that happened that everybody realized this is bad. We wronged Daniel Shea, but we also should have expected this because we can't make any money on our own. This is when people decided enough was enough. So on September 17th, 1787, the United States Constitution was written, and 11 days later, it would finally be presented. But before it was presented, on September 25th, 1787, the uh, Anti-Federalists came up, they had a big argument, didn't get anywhere, so they started printing out essay after essay like what we're familiar from the Federalist Papers. They started telling everybody, hey, you can't trust this federal government. It's a bad idea. Now, their concerns weren't that far-fetched. See, they were afraid that the federal government was not going to respect or recognize states' rights. Again, these are not the United States of America we're talking about. These are 13 states that just won a revolutionary war, they had a lot of problems during that war with each other. They don't trust each other, and for good reason. They had about as much in common as, say, the Entente during World War I, or the Allies for World War II. They didn't trust each other, but they needed each other. But not anymore. So, in response to the Anti-Federalist Papers, the first of the Pro-Federalist Papers, or just the Federalist Papers, would be published on October 27, 1787. These papers would explain how the Articles of Confederation worked, and mostly how they failed, why it needed to be changed, why it, why it couldn't be fixed, why it needed to be replaced as a whole. It would explain the situation the 13 colonies faced, the tremendous amount of resources each state had on its own, and what one nation with all of these resources put together could accomplish. In fact, they suggested that if America, if these 13 colonies united, they would be, at that time, a superpower capable of rivaling England, which is quite the bold claim, but not so far-fetched. Now, it also explained why the 13 states needed to come together, but how this federal government would go about forming without taking away their sovereignty, still keeping them 13 free autonomous states. It explained what this constitution had to offer, 
how it would work, how it would protect each other, and how it wouldn't overstep its bounds. It addressed the fears and the concerns presented by the Anti-Federalist Papers. The Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Papers then devolved into debates, with the Federalists saying the United States Constitution would be fine, that despite all of the flaws in government, there would be checks and balances, we would pit each other against each other. It would be ambition against ambition. So a whole lot of change wasn't going to happen. Everybody would have to be on the same page. The Anti-Federalists said that, yes, we recognize that you have this brilliant system worked out, but there are compromises. People will compromise to get what they want as a whole. This would not stop political parties from forming and from working together to accomplish that change, despite other people wanting different things. Thing is, both of them were right. Whether it would be presidents, people in Congress, or Supreme Court justices working solely for their political party, government was still vulnerable to change, and that change would inevitably wind up threatening states' rights. But the authors of the Federalist Papers were not naive. They had a plethora of information to go off of, over 2,000 years of human nature and their effects on government which governments succeeded facing which events, their strengths and their weaknesses, and what these countries, what these governments could have, should have done differently. They had hindsight. The authors even referred to themselves as Publius, a reference to one of the founders of the Roman Republic, and a lot of their writing referenced Rome and specifically the Roman Republic and eventually the Roman Empire. They even referred to some of their opponents and some of their supporters as a Caesar or a Cato or Brutus. They even started talking about the many Italian city-states, pointing out how much they could have accomplished had they have unified, where one state would lead in trade, another for agricultural produce, one for production, and another for military production or protection. Because, again, at this time, Italy was not a country. It was split into many, many different city-states, each of them vying for control over each other. In fact, it's the same conflict that sparked a lot of the uh, writings coming from uh, Machiavelli. So, who was right? Now, I'd say both of the, both parties here were right. I think the Federalists made very good points, and often where they were wrong was saying that, but you don't, we don't have to worry about this happening. And the Anti-Federalists were fairly right, saying, no, you're wrong, that is going to happen. See, if it weren't for the Federalists, then the United States of America would not be as united. We'd be more akin to squabbling city-states, just like all of these Italian city-states at the time were. We'd be sabotaging each other, fighting each other, denying each other the ability to grow, and eventually America would be completely divided. We would be so much weaker, 
and we would not be the superpower that we are today. Think of it this way. When we look at the American Civil War, we had this country split. Well, without any form of federal government, it would be far worse with countless confederacies splitting. Imagine World War I and World War II. This nation splits in half, and it's not a clear north and south, but pockets all over the country vying for control to sabotage whoever would support, say, the Allies, or whoever would support the Central Powers. And it would be the same in World War II, in any major conflict around the world. But if it weren't for the Anti-Federalists, I suspect the United States would be significantly more authoritarian, depriving states and citizens alike of their individuality, their sovereignty, rights, even autonomy. Much of the Bill of Rights can be attributed to the concerns of the Anti-Federalists. And even then, the Federalists still argued against the creation of the uh, Bill of Rights. See, while the Anti-Federalists said, we need a Bill of Rights because it's too vague, if we don't specifically list what rights people can and cannot have, well, the government will use loopholes and technicalities to strip people of these rights. The Federalists argued that, well, we can't have a Bill of Rights. Because with a Bill of Rights, we're essentially saying that these are the rights that government acknowledges. Therefore, these are the rights that the government has given to its civilians. Therefore, these are not natural rights or God-given rights. These are rights that are given to the people by the government, which means if the government wants to take them away, nobody can complain about it. It was the government's right in the first place. <clears throat> you know, now that I think about it, that's, uh, I've heard these arguments before, before reading the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers. I've heard these arguments in countless debates. I've heard them on the news. I've heard them everywhere, from friends, even. It's like... It's like these arguments are not unique to today or this year or my generation. It's like they weren't unique to the foundation of this nation, even. Dare I say, if we were to go back, I suspect that these same arguments would be present during the foundation of the very first civilization. Interesting thoughts. So how do I conclude this? Well, I have my beliefs, I know what I stand for, and I am biased. Trust me, I am very biased. And anyone you go to and ask about these topics, well, they'll either be just as biased as I am, or they'll be ignorant of these topics. So if you truly care about the United States of America, if you care about the future of this country, if you care about what America what we were founded off of, what these principles were, why we are the way we are, why we don't do this, why these so-called new progressive ideas that have been around since the foundation of this country, why don't we do this? You have to do your homework. And it, it's going to start from you researching, and it's going to start from you reading the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers. Both of them go hand in hand. 
you need them. And I can't say that one is more right than the other because they've both been able to contribute equally important information. Where one is wrong, the other one takes over. And a combination of both of these papers helps us understand, well, it's not so much looking forward, it's looking at the present and it's looking at the past, seeing who was right. That's how we're going to go forward, is by reflecting on these arguments and reflecting on America's history. But that's not all. It's not just these Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers. You also need to read the Constitution. You, you kind of want to understand what all this argumentation, what, what all this arguing of Federalist versus Anti-Federalist, you probably should read the Constitution just to get a frame of reference. You also need to look at the Articles of Confederation. And, you know what? Let's do some more homework. You need to read the Declaration of Independence. Because as many authors write, the Declaration of Independence is not in a vacuum. The Constitution is not in a vacuum. The Constitution is built off of the Declaration of Independence. Why on earth would the United States, what justification does the United States have for declaring war, for declaring independence from England, if we're just going to do the same thing England's going to do? That's where the Constitution comes in. That's where our proof, our reasoning, our justification for declaring war, to prove that we are different, we are doing something different. The foundation of the United States, this constitution, the government, you're not going to just plug in schoolhouse rock and get it. You got to do your homework, and it's a lot of homework, and it's too much homework that you you just you can't put it in some high school or grade school class. This is stuff that people who care about this country, people who want to change this country, these are the things that we need to understand. And it's going to take a great deal of studying on your own, of doing your own research, of pushing yourself. And it it's fairly easy. You just read one of these essays a day. It'll take you you know, a few months, but if you want to change America, you should probably understand America first. You don't want to go down there with these grand Machiavellian ideas that you picked up from the prince and think that you can implement that and make America better, because the Founding Fathers read Machiavelli's The Prince. So start off by reading the Constitution. And then look at the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers. And once you're done, turn on the news. Uh, but before you turn on the news, you should set a pillow on your desk or your counter, wh wherever you might be sitting at, because you are going to throw your face against that countertop really hard. The reason why I say this is because these essays perfectly predict human nature. It perfectly predicts how America would wind up. You read this and you say, oh, no wonder why we are the way we are. Oh, hey, would you look at this? The Federalist Papers said that if we go down road A, then these are going to be the consequences. And here's the consequences. I'm assuming that we went back 
where we went down road eight. Let's look uh, five, 10, 15 years down the road, or in the past, yep, yep, that's where we made that turn. If you love America, if you truly care about how we are, how we got to where we are, you should understand where we came from. And you should understand this Constitution, it is so much more than just some experiment that was cobbled up. There was years of research. All right, I'm done ranting. You guys go and do your homework now. Thanks for taking the time to listen.